So this summer, we're preaching through a service, a series called The Psalms That Shape Us, and we've invited members of our congregation to submit psalms that have been significant to them, and then we've invited them to speak on that with a member of our staff. So Kevin is sharing today on Psalm 88, and before he shares, I wanted to take a moment to pray for him. Lord God, I thank you so much for this dear son of yours. I thank you for the ways that he has faced into his fears, into the darkest parts of his heart, and found you there. Lord God, I pray that you would speak through him, that he would be your instrument for our sake. Amen. So a little bit about me uh, by way of introduction. I grew up in Malaysia, a Muslim-majority apartheid state. The Malaysian constitution codifies unequal treatment of its citizens based on race and religion. Places in taxpayer-funded public universities, leadership positions in corporations and government, and low-interest home loans uh, among other things, are reserved for Malay Muslims. Christians, a small minority, are convenient punching bags for conservative Muslims because proselytizing Muslims is illegal. Christian places of worship are regularly surveilled and Malay language Bibles confiscated. The state is authoritarian and our institutions are corrupt. As a result, I grew up with a heightened sensitivity to injustice. I am easily provoked to anger by those who deceive and lie about keeping promises. I hate unequal treatment that leads to oppression. I try to ensure that I'm on God's side and angered by things that anger God. I'm going to share a glimpse of a chapter of my life during which God and I were on opposing sides and I made God himself the object of my hatred and anger. Before Evelyn and I became parents to Micah, we went through four painful years of infertility and multiple miscarriages. There are many kinds of pain, and I do not intend to elevate any one experience of pain over another, least of all my own. And if anything, I know that I endure pain from a privileged position of comfort and security relative to many others in the world. But this was my pain, so if you'll permit me, I'll speak about it. I'm big on planning, and infertility was like a slap in the face, a reminder that having children was something I had no control over. As months became years, the slaps turned from something frustrating that could be ignored to what felt like a big, heavy hand striking me down, and the miscarriages were like daggers through my heart. In those few years, I found it harder and harder to reconcile God's goodness to others with God's seeming indifference to my pain. With each birth announcement from friends, and there were many in those years, my pain clouded my ability to share in the joy of others. I withdrew from others to avoid the reminder that I could not have what they did. Their God was good, mine was capricious, cruel, and mean. I found it hard to pray because I wanted nothing to do with a God who looked upon my pain and only offered 
abstract promises for the future. I could not care about the future redemption of my body or the marriage of heaven and earth because I was in what felt like my own private hell here and now. It was hell because I could see no end to it and because I was separated from loved ones. Not only the friends with kids I couldn't bear to be around, but anyone who dared to utter a well-intentioned word of encouragement or consolation, my state of mind turned their words into mockery. I don't know why I didn't walk away from God. I wanted to, but I stayed begrudgingly and with a growing hatred for God, daring God to kick me out of the church as one who didn't belong. I didn't explicitly pray Psalm 88 in those years, but looking back, I realized it was the cry of my heart for those long, long days. This is from the message translation. You turned my friends against me, made me horrible to them. I'm caught in a maze and can't find my way out, blinded by tears of pain and frustration. Many psalms capture the range of human emotions, but most of them involve some intermingling of grief and joy, of despondency giving way to doxology. Because of the place I was in, any mention of God turning brokenness to wholeness made me feel like I was being violently rushed out of hell when I didn't have the ability to leave. Psalm 88 is one of the few psalms that contain no hint of God's faithfulness. It was like the one friend who did not toss out cheap words of consolation, but knew to sit quietly with someone in their suffering. Psalm 88 only has fists clenched at heaven, rage directed at a God who has failed to live up to promises made long ago. Again from the message, I'm standing my ground, God, shouting for help. At my prayers every morning, on my knees each daybreak, why, God, do you turn a deaf ear? Why do you make yourself scarce? For as long as I remember, I've been hurting. I've taken the worst you can hand out, and I've had it. Your wildfire anger has blazed through my life. I'm bleeding black and blue. I don't think that my anger was righteous, but it was all that I had. It was my voice without pretension or filter. Praying this psalm shattered my idea of God and it shattered the mask I had tried to put on before God. I was no longer willing or able to pretend that I didn't hate God. I wasn't sure if God hurt me, but at least I was speaking honestly. Until that word can be dug out of us, why should God hear the babble that we think that we mean? How can God meet us face to face until we put on our true face? Over time, this prayer forced me into a wrestling match with God and took away my ability to ignore God. The prayer drew the venom out from my soul, or at least helped me to metabolize it. There was no singular moment when God rescued me from the hell I was in. It wasn't a switch that went off when we became pregnant or when Micah was born. I don't know what God's rescue would have looked like if we remained infertile. Such thoughts are too great and weighty for me. It took time and many missteps to rebuild my understanding of God, which continues to this day. What I know is that God is humble to the point that God is willing to be humiliated. 
God chased after me when I was in hell. God didn't lecture or correct my thinking, and God didn't defend God's own honor. God was simply there, taking my abuse and letting me think the worst of God. I also know that while it's easy to fool ourselves, there's no fooling God. If hatred towards God is all you have, it's best to hate God with all your heart. Walter Brueggemann writes, it is an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious, precious hatreds to God, knowing they will be taken seriously. That season has made all the difference in how I understand God, myself, and pain. I certainly see the pain of others in a new way. I see how God is so close to those in pain, and yet the most loving thing may at times be to remain silent about God's love and to let the darkness speak instead. Wendell Berry puts it beautifully in his poem, To Know the Dark. To go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark, go without sight. And find that the dark too blooms and sings. And is traveled by dark feet, by, by dark feet and dark wings. Our son Micah's middle name is Wei Ren, which is Chinese for great kindness. We gave him that name because he represents God's expression of kindness to us after those painful years. In hindsight, I can see the contours of God's kindness and redemption. And as Tolkien put it, what punishments of God are not gifts. But to look for the gift in the midst of what feels like punishment would be to rush through the pain in order to skip to the end. The point of Psalm 88 is that it creates space for anger and grief with no promise that it will ever come to an end. If you find yourself in that space like I was, I pray you will find a God willing to receive your hatred, whose love for you is unshaken by your pounding fists. I don't know how long you'll remain there, but I know God is there with you and will never leave. Good morning. My name is Russell Vick, and I am the curate here at Incarnation. Thank you for sharing, Kevin. During a theology class in undergrad, someone wants to find prayer as honestly presenting yourself to God and then honestly receiving God as he is. And while this definition is certainly not all-encompassing, it has personally helped me understand the nature of prayer in my own life. And I often use this definition as a starting point whenever I talk about prayer. And I share this definition with you all because Kevin's story is an example of where all authentic prayers begin, with an honest portrayal of yourself before the triune God. Kevin didn't try to hide behind nice words or spiritually empty phrases. Instead, he came before the Lord in his pain, grief, and anger. One part of Kevin's story that particularly stood out to me was hearing Kevin describe his experience of coming to church and daring God to kick him out. And while this may seem counterintuitive, all this anger, 
grief, and pain, which was directed towards God, was ultimately a form of prayer. There's an old Christian song which has the lyrics, God loves the drunkard's cry and a mother's tears in the dead of night, better than a hallelujah sometimes. Personally, I find the song a little too sentimental. Full disclosure, it's an Amy Grant song, so I suppose that's to be expected. <laughs> but what I do appreciate about this song is that it understands prayer to be more than just saying nice things to God. Genuine prayer requires us to present the entirety of ourselves, all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, and even our bodies to God. And if we are really being honest, there are moments when we don't feel like singing hallelujah. And in those moments, if we do try to sing and proclaim God's goodness, it feels meaningless and trite. So I am really, really grateful that Psalm 88 is in the Bible because it shows us what prayer looks like when we have nothing nice to say to God. And it also reveals to us the nature of the God who meets us in our anger, grief, and pain. So the psalm begins. O Lord my God, my Savior, by day and night I cry to you. Let my prayer enter into your presence. Incline your ear to my lamentation. For I am full of trouble, and my life is at the brink of the grave. Right from the beginning, the psalmist clearly has no doubt of the God that he is addressing. This is a prayer to Yahweh, the God who liberated the Hebrews from slavery and promised their father Abraham that they would be a chosen people through whom the world would be blessed. And so the psalmist appeals to a God with all this theological history in mind, but he does so in a very personal way. The psalmist does not see Yahweh as just the God of Israel, but as his own God, a God who is able to hear the deep cries of his own heart. He does not see God as merely Israel's savior, but he refers to him as my savior. And in addressing God in this way, I can just imagine the deep despair and anger that the psalmist was feeling. Hey God, I know who you are. You are the God who revealed himself to our leader Moses. You claim to be a God who abounds in steadfast love and mercy. And if you really are all good and powerful, then I really need your help right now. I need you to hear me when I call. I need you to be my savior. Because right now, you don't seem to be doing anything. And as the psalmist continues, his language gets even more graphic and more dark. Lost among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the depths of the pit, in dark places and in the abyss. The psalmist compares himself to those who are dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. These are people whom God remembers no more and who are unable to experience God's presence. He describes himself as one who dwells in the darkest places, 
completely forsaken from the God of life. And in fact, the only thing the psalm seems to experience from God is his anger and wrath. And of course, a lot of this language is metaphorical, right? The psalmist is not actually dead, nor is he living in a hole that was dug in the ground. But the psalmist knows, like all good poets know, that metaphor and poetry is often the only language we can use to describe the real things. And the reality of the psalmist's experience is bleak, dark, and lifeless, with no sense of hope. And the only sense of hope that he has, if he has any hope at all, is Yahweh, the one he identified as my savior at the beginning of the psalm. And yet this God who identifies as his savior is also simultaneously the one who causes his pain. The psalm continues, your anger weighs upon me heavily and all your great waves overwhelm me. You have put my friends far from me. You have made me to be abhorred by them. I am in prison and cannot get free. My sight has failed me because of trouble. Lord, I have called upon you daily. I have stretched out my hands to you. And so notice the way he's addressing God, his savior. Your anger weighs heavily upon me. Your great waves overwhelm me. You have put my friends far from me. You have made me abhorred by them. Lord, I have called upon you daily, and I have stretched out my hands to you. You are the Savior of Israel, and I believe you to be my Savior. But you have been the source and cause of my pain. So what's going on, Lord? What are you doing to me? As someone who's faithfully following you, how do you expect my current life to reflect your glory? After all, do you work wonders for the dead? Will those who have died and stand up give you thanks? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in the land of destruction? Will your wonders be known in the dark? Or your righteousness in the country where all is forgotten? So in light of everything that I'm experiencing, God, do you really expect me to praise you? How can I possibly sing hallelujah? In the psalmist's case, he is certainly not offering praises to God. But he is offering something. In the midst of all his grief and anger, he still offers his attention and directs it to God. And he directs his grief and anger and all of his deep questions. They're all being offered to God. But as for me, O Lord, I cry to you for help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Lord, why have you rejected me? Why have you hidden your face from me? Ever since my youth, I have been wretched and at the point of death. I have borne your terrors with a troubled mind. Your blazing anger has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They surround me all day long like a flood. They encompass me on every side. My friend and my neighbor you have put away from me. 
and darkness is my only companion. As Kevin pointed out, this psalm ends with no real resolution. The psalmist doesn't appeal to an eternal future hope. The psalmist doesn't try to rationalize his experience with an overly simplistic doctrine of providence. The psalmist doesn't just throw up his hands and say, well, I guess everything happens for a reason. The psalmist doesn't say, well, it could be worse, or at least I'm a, not a starving, persecuted child in Africa. The psalmist doesn't try to find the lesson that God is teaching. The psalmist just reflects upon his current experience and ends the psalm in utter loneliness and darkness. We don't know the circumstances that inspired the psalmist to write this psalm. And, I don't, and honestly, I don't think we really need to know the backstory to understand the emotion that he's feeling. The psalmist has experienced the reality of utter brokenness and wonders why God doesn't just fix it. And in wondering this, the psalmist believes that God has forgotten and abandoned him. As I have gotten the privilege of rooting myself in the community of this church, I am grateful for the way that many of you have opened your homes and your lives to me. And I look forward to continue doing life with this congregation for however long the Lord wills it. And I imagine that some of you in this room are wondering what the Lord is doing in the current and painful circumstances of your life. And perhaps, like the psalmist, you feel as if God has completely forsaken and abandoned you. And I just want to say I'm really, really sorry. The fact that we live in a broken world, even though God is all good and all powerful, is a mystery that will not be solved this side of heaven. And I am not going to say that the pain you might be experiencing will go away anytime soon, nor am I going to pretend to know what the Lord is doing in your circumstances. This is a mystery, and it would be wrong of me to try to answer those. But I will leave you with one more mystery to consider, that we worship a God who personally knows the reality of suffering and forsakenness. We worship a God who cried at the grave of his friend, even though he knew he'd bring him back to life, which that in and of itself says something. He knew the end result, and he still cried. We worship a God who knelt in a garden, crying out to his divine father to the point where he sweated blood. We worship a God who was wrongfully arrested, even though he didn't deserve it. We worship a God who was completely abandoned by the friends he loved perfectly. We worship a God who felt so alone that he proclaimed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A God who entered our pain and loss and suffering so deeply, even to the point of death on a cross. And if you could choose only one psalm 
to associate with the life of Jesus, the man of sorrows, you wouldn't be wrong to choose Psalm 88. This psalm points to his experience perfectly. So whatever you may be going through, I implore you to keep your attention on Jesus, the God who enters human suffering, the man of sorrows. Come meet with him. And if you are baptized, go to the table and meet with him there. And if the only thing you have to offer are shouts and questions and tears, maybe even curses, just come into his presence and say what you have to say. You, and if you don't have any words at all, you even use Psalm 88. That's why it's there, to give you a tool to, to talk to God when you have no words. It's there for a reason. And that will be better than a hallelujah. Amen.